Alrighty, welcome to GameSense, everybody. We're real happy to be here and hope that you guys are having a happy build season. Uh, we're kicking off the start, well, the second episode of our season three with our second annual holiday special here. Uh, today, I'm, uh, I'm not today, every day. I'm Francis O'Rourke, and I'm here with the rest of the GameSense crew and a very special guest who I'll introduce in just a quick second. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure to thank our sponsor, Symbotic, for supporting our efforts and making what we do here at GameSense possible. To learn more about what they do, go to Symbotic.com. All right, as always, I just want to remind everybody that, the view, that this is not an official first broadcast. Our views and the views of our guests are our own, and nothing we say here is official in any kind of fashion. Also, we don't take ourselves too seriously, so you shouldn't either. Have fun, and if you don't like we said, what we've said, go out and prove us wrong. With that, I want to introduce everybody. With us tonight behind the scenes is Ty Tremblay on assignment in Virginia. Uh, and of course, our fabulous director, Stephanie Morrison, helping us make sure the whole show goes off without a hitch. On air tonight, we've got Evan Morrison and Naveed Shafa, and our newest member of GameSense, Ruth Toomey. Ruth, why don't you give us a little bit about yourself? Uh, <clears throat> hey guys, um, so I've been doing FIRST for about 10 years now. I started in 2006 uh, as a high school senior with uh, Team 1735, the Green Reapers in Western Massachusetts. Um, from there, I went to WPI, joined uh, Team 190 where I met Evan and Francis. Um, and uh, we just happened to be part of the World Championship team, which was pretty cool. Um, after that, I moved back to uh, mentoring with 1735. Um, and I was with them for another two years. And I, it kind of, something felt off and um, I ran out of a lot. I was, <laughs> um, I needed more free time, but I still wanted to stay involved. So I moved to volunteering pretty much full time um, and I've been doing that since 2006. I've served as lead cure in many events across New England the last six years, and uh, I've been very lucky to uh, be a volunteer coordinator at a few different off-season events, um, most notably with 319 uh, and 190, um, who both of whom I'm still very close with. And this year I rejoined uh, 190 uh, as I work at WPI. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for giving us your hello down there, Ruth. Uh, and we got one last person on the, on the show today. Last but not least is FRC director, Frank Merrick. Uh, Frank, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Oh, sure. My name's uh, Frank Merrick. I'm the director of First Robotics Competition. And that's about it. I wish I was more <laughs> complex. <laughs> you know, I'm just a really yes. simple person. Noted. That's where we are. That's where I am. There Sorry. you go. Noted actor and uh, and king of FRC here. Owner of a castle, apparently. Yes. Owner of a castle. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we get started, if anyone has any questions for uh, us or for Frank today, as we talk about the show uh, or go about the show, you can send them to us via our Twitch chatbot. If you're watching on Twitch TV, in the chat, just type exclamation point, the letter Q, and then your question. And our bot will automatically catalog it and send it to us. And if we like it, we'll answer it on air. All right. So before we just let everyone know what's going to happen in this show, we're going to talk with Frank about the process behind Stronghold, what the GDC thought of the game, and sort of get a little bit of behind the scenes as to what exactly went on uh, up in Manchester this past off season. <laughs> 
But before we do that, there's one thing we got to catch up on from our first episode of the season, which was the reveal of the Stronghold teaser. If you don't remember, you can check it out, check it out on YouTube. We had a special show with some guests. We had uh, Christine from 125 and Jared from Team 254, as well as the entirety of Team 148 and 2337. We had them on to give live feedback as to what happened right after we revealed the Stronghold trailer. And so we promised these people, whoever got it right, whoever got the closest to what actually the game was, was going to get a free GameSense t-shirt. So we want to announce the winner right here, right now. The winner of all those four people is, drumroll, everybody drumroll. Okay, fine, that's a drumroll. Uh, it, is, <laughs> it is Christina Tia from Team 125. She got it the most right by guessing two things. She guessed that there was going to be a drawbridge in the game, which is true. And she said, and I quote, what if a defense is something else? Something that doesn't have to be robot-to-robot -robot interaction. So she guessed what, a de what defenses were. So good, good luck on, good on her for doing that. One other thing, though, i got to point out, is that we have a spy among us, apparently. Evan Morrison got nine different things correct about the game during his time on the show. He guessed that there were going to be obstacles. He guessed that you would have to break through some sort of barrier. He guessed that uh, different parts of the field could only be accessed by a single robot or a single alliance. He guessed launching. He, in fact, said the word, you're going to have to breach the defenses. <laughs> he said that once you capture the stronghold, your flag gets raised. And he said that there is no game piece you have to break through. You just have to get to the other side. Is All these nine, things. Nine guesses out of how many, Francis, though? That's <laughs> okay, a lot. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, will, I will say. It just sounds like he created a laundry list yes, of every <laughs> possible combination. <laughs> yeah. Throw enough boulders at the tower and one's thing. bound to that's go That's awesome, in. though. Really? Raise the flag? That's, yep. that's, that's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> so I got to say. If you want to watch it, you can figure it out for yourself. Uh, Evan, Evan guessed like probably about an equal amount wrong, but <laughs> considering we had a, a game, you know, we had a, a trailer that didn't really give us any information about what the game beside no, the name that's was. Great. That's, that's I amazing. think it was pretty pretty cool. So good on Evan for doing that. All right. So first up, I wasn't in New Hampshire during any point during the last year. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of funny you say that because I'm sure Frank's going to talk about this a little bit about how. Um, what the inspiration for Stronghold was and sort of where that came from. Frank, do you want to just talk a little bit about, about sure. what, what the yeah, genesis so, of the game was? Well, this was, um, it kind of, it, for the most part, it started back in May. We actually made a trip out to California to visit Walt Disney Imagineering with some, some of the staff. Um, uh, Dean was there. Uh, Don Bosey was there. Many of the, or some of the FRC staff was there as well. And we did a, sort of an exercise with Disney that was, I think it's called carousel brainstorming. I'm not sure on that. I don't know that that's what they call it. But essentially, you have these different stations, and each station dealt with some aspect of FRC or FIRST. And it was very broad, like FIRST outreach, you know, how do we how do we uh, kind of expand? I think maybe, I don't know if um, international expansion was one of those stations as well. But And at each station, there's a facilitator from Disney who kind of helps you talk through things. And what happens is you break into groups, and you rotate through the various stations that's why it's called carousel brainstorming and one of the stations was okay the 2016 game and um one of the disney folks was talking was actually if i remember right he was actually a video game designer for disney this is my recollection now this was months ago this is kind of what i remember <laughs> and 
Oh, somewhere along the line, when I, when I was at a station and everyone else, I'm sure, because I think he was one of the facilitators there, he th used the term tower defender. And in that tower defender phrase is an entire story, if you think about it. If I say to you the, the phrase tower defender, you immediately get an idea. And I think most folks would, okay, there's a tower, there's some kind of defense, so there's obviously some kind of conflict. So after we, you know, we went through and we generated all these kind of ideas, we got back to New Hampshire and we all formalized, or many of us formalized the ideas that we had. In the end, we ended up with 24 semi-formal proposals that we had. Of those 24, three were some variations on Tower Defender. And I actually sent you guys uh, an image on one of those uh, 24. I don't know if you want to you want to show that. Uh, yeah, I think Steph's going to throw it up right now on screen. If you hopefully. can pop that up. And if you look at this, hopefully it's going to be coming up. The, the, the image actually is, if you look at it, kind of some of the elements of the game are there. This is, it had uh, an opening where there was some, uh, uh, you know, where you would be scoring uh, uh, some type of game object. There was sort of a ladder. It was all sort of inside the field. So it was very basic and it might not even, you might not even recognize it as sort of a tower defender game. Yeah, here we go. But, oh, here we go. Okay, there it is. Now this Whoa. this had you, you can see yeah you can see right there and so it had you know it had a ladder for climbing it had a like a tower opening this version even included sort of the scoring lights you know like the life lights or the strength lights we we're calling them now um, this was one of the early versions when we we developed it a little more we combined some ideas this version did not have the movable defenses in it yet but if you go to the next version of the game that this developed into, you can see, there you go. You can see that this is very much some basics of what you could, would recognize as first stronghold. Those defenses there are movable. There are only two. This is just an early sketch, but you can see now you have more of a, an actual tower there. And the movable defenses themselves actually came, which I think is really one of the key aspects, really, I would say the breakthrough aspect of the game are these movable defenses. And that was an idea from Derek Foster, who's our mechanical engineering manager, um, which is good. He came up with the idea because uh, I think if anyone else did, he, he there's just so much work to designing these defenses. Yeah. It would have been a real challenge. <laughs> uh, he may have turned them down. But anyway, it's his idea. So so he and, he and his, his team, uh, you know, had to go through designing all those defenses. But here you can see essentially the basics of the game. Now it evolved from here. There was something very interesting that happened along the way to, to First Stronghold though. Um, on June 23rd, we had actually narrowed these 24 ideas down to four. This was what you're looking at was one of the four. On the 26th, we had a, a bigger a weekend gathering and we really got down and we said, okay, the Tower Defender is, concept is the concept that we're going with. We had three different stories. Disney is huge on story, of course. That's one of the really big learnings that we had from Disney this year. Disney is huge on stories. And we had three different stories that went along with that. But the medieval story with a Tower Defender in a medieval kind of mode was kind of leading the way. It wasn't the final decision yet. Now, um, Team 1198, I'm sorry, 1189, the gearheads out of Michigan had actually won the FedEx Innovation Challenge that they had put on. The prize for winning that year, the, last year, the prize for winning the FedEx Innovation Challenge was being able to make, make a pitch to FRC, make a game pitch to FRC. Whoa. Three days after we had decided 
that we were going to have a tower defender game with the concept that there was going to medieval theme was pri- probably not sure exactly, but that was at least a leading contender for what the theme was. Three days after that, they released a little bit of information on the pitch that they were going to make. They were planning to make the pitch on July 10th. And the pitch that they came out with that we saw was a tower defender game set in the Middle Ages, and it was called Medieval Mayhem. And I think I even gave you guys the, the logo that they had provided to us. So <laughs> there you go. So that, that looks like a boulder. Yeah. It, yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it it so is a boulder. Unbelievably, they, completely independent of everything that we were doing, had developed a medieval tower defender game that they were going to pitch to us in a couple weeks. Now, when we saw that they had posted some of the information of the game, I gave one of their mentors a call and said, uh, can you maybe take that down so other people can't see it because it makes it complicated. You know, it's hard for us to use ideas that you have. If they're out in the community, they understood completely. They took it down. You know, it was, it was no problem at all. And then they came in and made this fantastic pitch on July 10th. It was fantastic. It was so well thought out. And um, we just we just loved it. Of course, we had to watch it all with a straight face, knowing that we had a game that it was going to be very similar to in, in 2016. But they really did a fantastic job uh, with the whole thing. Oh, awesome. Uh, so that's that's kind of how we got to, and you know, I'm going to be actually be doing a blog about this interesting aspect of what the uh, 1189 the Gearheads did because it's just so fascinating that they came up with very similar game to oh. what we did, totally independently. And what it did for us was kind of verify that or or uh, support the idea that a game like this was kind of in the air. The theme is was very hot. There's a lot of things you could do here. Uh, it was just it just all kind of clicked. So it was all it was all good at the end, but I'll tell you when I first saw that they had posted this medieval mayhem, I was a little like, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was it was all good. Can I ask cool. a, a real quick question? Um, so it sounds like you guys sort of had a uh, I'm going to use a word that gets used in a different game I play. Uh, it's like a top-down design. You guys kind of came up with a theme, and then worked the game into it from there. Is that is? If correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it, was, it, it was more. I would say it was more mixed than that. Okay. Uh, many some, and this is a conversation we actually had with Disney, and it's it's fascinating how they how they end up doing it. Um, there, I would say that it was more mixed than that. For if you look at the 24 concepts that we formalize. Many of them were sort of ground up, like here's sort of a concept of a game mechanic or an interesting game, and here's sort of a theme to go with it. But some of them were more top-down. Here's a theme, you take the theme and then put the game with it. What Disney said to us was very interesting that they always, almost always, not always, they almost always start with the story and then build a ride around it. However, there are rare occasions I've been told, where they have this great ride mechanic that is just so cool, they have to do something with it, and then they'll take that ride mechanic and then put the theme on top of it. So even they kind of do it both ways. But primarily from Disney, the way I'm, like, I'm not a Disney expert, I'm just telling you what I've heard and what I remember, (laughs) is that they start with kind of the story and the theme, and that is really what makes what they do so special because it's all very emotional and grabbing and it's really not just about kind of the ride itself it's about experiencing the story in the ride yeah i gotta say that when i first saw the the real full game i was 
incredibly impressed with how how it was all sort of contained in this mm-hmm. theme. What do you guys, what do the rest of you guys think about that? Dead silence. Um, <laughs> no, I, um, I, and this actually kind of goes with one of the questions that I had, which is, did, did all of these, um, you talk about story, um, but in my mind, story is, is not always necessarily the same thing as theme. Um, right. And so did all of these 24 concepts or the majority of them have a theme that went along with the story or was it very much a, you ended these up with this power defense strategies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the medieval theme really fit well with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily tied from the very beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, and you're right. It wasn't tied from the very beginning. Um, that was, I think the, conception of some of the folks that actually contributed those like three ideas that we had that were the tower defense story but when we actually we actually did settle on the tower defender uh, sort of game concept but with that tower defender game concept one of the themes was medieval two others were not medieval but still had a very similar sort of game mechanic but it was a different different type of theme interesting because cool. I know I, I know a lot of people that are kind of I, I wouldn't say put off by but um, don't really care for having themes with the first mm-hmm. games. Um, sure. So I was just curious if that was how you guys worked and you just said put the theme on top because you liked it or if it was integral from the beginning. So that's that's interesting to hear. It I was it was a little bit more of a mix. I, I think that fundamentally what we want to have is a great game. That's fundamentally what we want to have is, is a great game. If we can integrate a great theme with it, I think that makes it even better. And it, it, we'll find out when this particular game actually gets played <laughs> how good it is uh, uh, in practice. But here was, I think, an example potentially. And like I said, time will tell. You guys will tell me. I won't, you know, you guys are the judge, not me. Um, we'll see how well those two mixed together but it does seem to i'll say that the game seems to have struck a chord with the community lots of people it seems as if lots of people are excited about it about the game itself the game mechanics but it feels like some people are really getting caught up kind of with the the theme as well and say hey this is this is pretty interesting and uh very visual for the audience oh cool i i agree with that um i I, i'm on i'm definitely on the side that likes that really likes this game especially how it's it's cool, and it's got, you know, like you said, it's got its own story and its own theme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To sort of talk more about how you folks work with Disney, um, really, really quick, I want to just kind of ask, how did you guys get involved with them? What's What was the genesis of that relationship? Uh, we've uh, Greg Hale from Disney uh, has been with us sort of as a, on our game design committee for a few years now. Uh, so they've, they've always had at least some type of presence sort of on our game design committee, like I said, at least for the last few years. But it was really this year at, uh, I think at Dean's Urging, actually, where we became very active. And we said, okay, let's make an actual trip to Disney and understand what they do, how they do. And it really was a turning point, I think, in our thinking of how we sort of conceive of games and just the importance of having some some story that goes along with a game that's more than just the story being I'm trying to more score more points than the other guy that there's there's something sort of more 
maybe a little more interesting. Not that that's not interesting and that could be very exciting because really that's all for the most part, uh, you know, sports are. It's, 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 it could be very exciting. But how do we add a little more um, something to it to make it emotionally engaging mm -hmm. for, the, for the audience and for the, and for the players? Yeah, I mean, the game inherently, the way that it's been designed, you have objectives within the game which are separate from actually winning the match. Um, and that's right, and 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 they're sequential in in some regard, right? You break through, you breach the defenses, and then you have to weaken the tower, and then you can capture the tower, and all of those gain tangible benefits for teams that aren't tied to winning the match, although they may help them win the match. Sure, um, yeah, and that's, that's right. why. I mean, I'd argue that it's almost more like an eSport than it is like mm -hmm. a traditional sport with all of these <laughs> side objectives or quests, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other sure. thing to sort of look at is that, like, you don't ever see a board game. Like, I'm going to talk about Ruth's favorite board game, which is Pandemic, right? It's, it's, a, it's a board game about, you know, global diseases, right? If the game was called Put Cubes on a Grid, people <laughs> wouldn't like it very much. And, you know, right. it, it, had a lot of, it could have a lot of depth and be very cool. For people mm -hmm. who are into that, but that's right. it's a lot more cool to think of you know think of these as real things. I think that's right. And if you're reminding me of uh, just the, the little bit of the history of video games, a little bit that I know, if you go back to the, um, for example, Donkey Kong, where they the first time, and I don't remember the designer's name. You guys probably probably know him, where he said, "Hey, let's put an actual story." in the game instead of just being pew, pew, pew and, you know, running around and that kind of thing. And that's how the whole, um, you know, Donkey Kong and uh, Zelda, that whole, that's how that whole thing, he showed that you could put emotion, generate emotion within a game by incorporating a story into it. And it just made them more compelling. The game mechanics themselves were already great. You could enjoy them, but this brought an extra depth, an extra element of feeling to it. Right. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, and it was, so was Disney involved past that initial brainstorming? Did they come back oh, yes. and do a review? Okay. Oh, absolutely. So we were having weekly calls. We had our own uh, producer from Disney, uh, Joey Caparosa. I think I pronounced his last name right. I know it's Joey anyway. A great, fantastic, wonderful guy. He actually was instrumental. He came out that one weekend and really helped us focus on the story. And we were having weekly calls actually with Disney where we said, this is what we're looking at, getting advice from them. You know, how, how far do we go in incorporating theme elements? I mean, that's why – this one of the reasons why um, – you know, one of the things we asked them was, how far do we go in, in going full out on this medieval theme? And they just said, just go for it. That's why you say, see, it's, we don't call, that's why the Cheval de Frise is a Cheval de Frise instead of teeter-totters. We just, you know, that's yeah. why you have embrasures on the field and you have a batter on the field. All these, uh, you have a portcullis. Um, it, it's all these sort of terms that, that helps to at least set the mood, even though the community may decide that the best thing to call the Cheval de Frise is a teeter-totter, but still the way it's in the manual is a Cheval de Frise. And we're trying to, it's really trying to create an entire um, setting to kind of suck you in. Like here's an unusual, here's a, here's some unusual words that maybe not everyone in the community is familiar with. Let's try to create that sort of context to, to bring people into the story as best we can. And the same thing, same thing for, in terms of audience participation, that's why we've got the audience picking defenses for the rounds. Ah, huh. interesting. That's really cool. 
Speaking of sort of audience participation, Ruth, you got to talk about field complexity? Yeah, so uh, with many years under my belt as setting up uh, fields uh, at events and lead queuing, uh, the, there's a lot going on in this field. Um, oh, yeah. What, what's, what's the uh, anticipated effect on the flow of events? Um, how is it going to affect uh, field reset between the matches? Um, I know sure. that uh, each the, the audience-selected uh, defenses are going to rotate out probably every six or seven matches, depending on how many teams are at the event. Yeah, that's um, right. Is, have you gotten it down to a science for the other three that are rotating out every match? <laughs> so it's not down to a science yet, uh, but we did do testing and sort of uh, simulation where we mm -hmm. had staff members and, you know, we, we brought robots out and we brought uh, defenses out. And we said, okay, imagine that we've got to change all the defense. Every, every defense on the field has to change around, change location or coming on, coming off and bringing robots on at the same time. So we did some, some sort of some timing on that. Mm -hmm. We think we're going to be okay. Uh, we think we can, you know, keep the cycle times around seven minutes is it going to be easy no there's going to be a lot of activity on the field but we're actually planning to do some things that are helping out with field reset for one thing i'd already mentioned that all the defenses you can't see it you know just looking at the field but all the defenses are actually on um uh casters so they, they yeah. can be rolled around and we're we're even exploring the possibility this hasn't been settled out yet now we do, we don't know this but if you look at the lights on the defenses, and this is this is something that the um, our programmers come up came up with, and we'll see if it actually goes forward. If you look at the lights on the defenses, there are essentially three segments of lights on each defense. Right. Well, two to the power of three is eight. There are eight defenses. You can actually encode what defense needs to go where by using the lights. Now, we haven't, that hasn't been built in yet. We're still thinking about that. There's still a lot of, you know, <laughs> there's still a lot of to go between here and there, but essentially what we're trying to do is make it as easy as possible so that field reset crew needs, knows what defense needs to go where. For example, if a defense is staying where it is, maybe those lights are green, you don't touch it. If a defense is moving to another location on the same side of the alliance, maybe that that those colors are yellow. So, you know, it's staying on the field, but it's moving. Maybe if it's red, it is coming completely off. All these are just ideas that we're working through, but we know we need to do something to make sure, make it as easy as, as painless, not pain-free, because those are two different things, painless as <laughs> possible to move the def to, to change the uh, defenses out um, between matches. Right. I also know that um, there are at least a few events who are looking to implement a position called the, the defensive coordinator, um, basically working within the queuing line. Um, how is this going to affect, uh, you know, it, with teams that show up late to matches and that sort of sure. thing? So defense coordinator is actually a required position at every event. So that is a named position that the volunteer coordinators are going to be filled. And the defense coordinator, if you look through uh, the tournament section of the manual, it explains what that person is doing. And that person is responsible for ensuring that the information from the alliances is in terms of what defenses they want where is properly entered in the system. And there's this is one of the reasons why the game manual is so long this year is that we had to put in a lot of rules in terms of when teams need to be where uh, in order to make their selections 
in time. And so what it comes down to basically, there's a lot of rules around it, but uh, essentially a couple, uh, two matches before you're going to be on the field. So essentially when you're in the hole, you have to make, make your picks to give them to the defense coordinator. The defense coordinator takes the red side and the blue side, puts it in the system. It's linked in through FMS, prints something out. They, they separate the, there's, it's going to be like a, a, a form that is um, perfect. So it can be easily torn. Each alliance gets the other alliance's picks, at least the match before, and then the, at the same time, the field supervisor knows what's going on. So the idea is you pick two matches before, what, what, alliance, what defenses you want to have. One match before, you find out what alliances you're going to, what defenses you're going to be going against. And then that gives you that one match to strategize with your alliance. Who's going to go where? Who's going to be doing what? We've got these defenses. What are we going to do? Plan all that out. So there's going to be a lot of activity. Like with any great, you know, with any <laughs> potentially great game, there's a lot going on underneath the surface. That's one of the reasons why, the other reasons why I'm, this game to me is looking any, any way pretty good is that from an audience perspective, you can come in and probably know nothing and say, okay, the red robots are attacking the blue tower. Every time the boulder goes in, I can see the light go down. You know, the, the blue robots are attacking the red tower every time. But there's this entire layer or multiple layers of strategy underneath that that you don't necessarily need to know to enjoy the game. But if you're a team, you're certainly going to want to know. Yeah. Right. Uh, so speaking of the audience, uh, can you just give us a little uh, behind the scenes on how that became a thing, the audience selecting the defense in the third position. We had talked about, we had been talking about really for some time, how do we get the audience themselves sort of more engaged in the game, in the matches? It's a challenge when you have 3,000 teams and you go to an event and there are 50 teams there and you may not be familiar with if you're just coming off the street or something that we have a lot of those people who want to get more if you're just coming off the street and you don't maybe you know a couple of those teams it's not like going to like a um a, like a sporting event i don't know how many teams there are in the nfl 30 something or something but anyway in 32, and 32 okay only one and the patriots team happens to, and the team that <laughs> happens to live geographically closest to you is the best i understand that i understand how <laughs> that works but uh you have someone to root for i guess and that helps you keep that's why they fill eighty thousand person stadiums because all these people want to come in and see their team or their or they're hating on a team or they're loving a team or whatever is there so how do we kind of break that with um with the number of teams that we have where you really just don't know, you don't see them that often, how do we get the audience emotionally engaged in the game? And we said, well, maybe they can somehow influence the game. Maybe there's a way to do that. But no, you can't do that because it's unfair or you don't know yeah, what's going on. So anyway, we had a perfect opportunity here. We said, hey, we're going to have five defenses. One of them is going to be fixed. It's a low bar. One of them is going to be picked by the audience. And the audience can get excited. You know, Even if you're not sure, maybe you just like the looks of the Cheval de Fries. Or maybe you just like saying Cheval de Fries and you want to you know, pick that one to be your defense. Or maybe you so, have no idea how to say Cheval de Fries. <laughs> and the other thing we did is because we because we had considered, well, what if people just vote by oh, what if people just vote by Twitter or, or something and they've got this app that they use and <laughs> no way. So because we don't want the defenses going up on the screen and people suddenly uh, 
going like the audience going silent and looking down at their phones. That's not what we want. We want people coming out of their seats with excitement about picking these different whether it's going to happen or not. I don't know. We're going to find out. But we want we want we want the the event uh, the event managers to have to put up police barricades to stop people from storming the field <laughs> when they get to pick these defense. Whether or not that's going to happen, I don't know. We don't want anyone to hurt. Safety first. But you know what I'm saying. Are for. We want physical, physical, emotional shouting and stomping on that. You can't bring air horns or anything like that. But we just want physical engagement in picking these defenses. Like I said, we don't know whether to what extent it's going to happen. We're going to find out. I'm going to be excited for it. I'm hyped. So I got one more thing that I'm really excited about. We're bringing back win-loss tie. While last year we had a really strong ranking system and arguably it was putting the top eight in a position that we hadn't seen it in a long time, we have an opportunity this year to see some mix-up in the rankings with not only the win-loss tie, but additional ranking points for breaching and an additional ranking point for challenging. Uh, tell us a little bit about your guys' thought process through developing that, and also, big thank you for not including cooperation. <laughs> oh, come on. You're That's welcome. <laughs> uh, so... The defenses, of course, are, we wanted the defenses to be a, um, a very important part of the game. And we wanted to make sure that there was a strong incentive for teams to deal with those defenses. So we didn't want to uh, have a situation where essentially a team could just go keep going over the same defense over and over again and, and – uh, uh, you know, come out, sort of have that be a, a significant advantage. And so we looked at points and it wasn't quite right, giving points for defenses. We wanted to do a little more than that. And we saw that kind of the bridge balancing in what year was that? You guys would know off the top of your heads. I wouldn't. Bridge balancing? Yeah, bridge balancing. 2012. 2012, 2012 and 2001. 2012. We saw how that encouraged <laughs> some interesting, some very interesting sort of dynamic in terms of, of people going for that sort of extra little excitement. And so when it came down to it, we wanted we wanted um, lots of activity around uh, defenses. We wanted to have a strong incentive for teams to weaken the tower and to capture the tower because we wanted this sort of rush towards the tower on opposite sides, you know, at the end of the match. And when we put that all together, points really didn't work as we wanted them to. Uh, so we went for qualification, just, you know, match points didn't work the way we wanted to. So we wanted, we went for qualification points instead. And this of course gives an interesting dynamic and some say, well, it's an advantage or some say it's, you know, it's not an advantage. It causes more problems, but essentially um, you know, only one alliance can win the match, but both either or none can get breach or capture right. points. And that's a nice change from 2012. I mean, you've got that neat mechanic of the bridge, but instead of having to work with your opponent and prep that before the match and figure out, right. I have to rely on these other teams that may not want to work with me. Now yep. I can lower a drawbridge from my partner. I can open a sally port. I can tip the teeter-totters or your cheval de frise if you prefer. Um, <laughs> it's a real and, thing. If you look it up, yeah. it's on Wikipedia. It's a real thing. We didn't make it up. Yeah. <laughs> Could have fooled me. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's really pretty cool. Um, the way that, that that mechanic, I, I know I narrowed in on that right away with the, you've got one 
possibility for additional ranking points that can be effective or could potentially be accomplished by a single robot and another opportunity for extra ranking points which has to be accomplished by an entire alliance right um but and it's weighted less yeah. than a win which is nice as opposed to yeah I, I believe if the bridge was worth the same as a win right yes Am I it thinking? Was. Yeah, yeah that was one of the issues but we did what now <laughs> <laughs> well, we can we can, we can i wrote, yeah, okay. I wrote three thousand words about different games and we could talk about that game a lot but uh <laughs> but um oh manisha no um but uh that's a different thing um we're gonna, we have actually a question from the folks in the chat uh we're gonna put up right real quick and this is sort of on on the topic we're talking about here uh this is asked by a gentleman named um pierce i can't re i can't pronounce that i apologize do you Why? think the drawbridge and sallyport are really like cooperation in disguise. Our alliance is coordinating to hold them open for their alliance partners. Frank, what are your thoughts on that? Is that is that sort of a thought you put into it when you came up with it? Cooperation would be more along the lines of you holding the door open for yeah. the opposite alliance. I do agree. Not yes. your own alliance. I think I think it's I less cooperation. Team, if you hold the, if you hold the door open for your own alliance, I would call that teamwork, not cooperation. <laughs> or just cooperating, perhaps. Yes. They're just cooperating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I agree. That's what I but, would say. You know, it is kind of interesting to see that there's so many different kinds of of defenses. What when you guys uh, came up with the game? Did you guys have a list? Uh, did you have some defenses that didn't make? Yeah, it? we did. Really? <laughs> yeah. You're asking if any defenses didn't make the cut? Yeah. Yes, yeah, some defenses did not make the cut. Oh boy. Uh, we had um, there. There was one that was sort of on a uh, like a round table on a gimbal. That sort of rotated around. Oh. Uh, there was <laughs> a, like a bunch of ball bearings. Uh, was, yeah, and it was just we looked at it, um, huh. but it, for one thing, the 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 component that was required to build that was really just too expensive for the teams. I mean, if you if you think that the uh, the boulders are expensive, you should have seen how much this thing cost. But the that's, um, that's the reason that you decided not to do it, not because a gimbal ground uh, well, table was impossible. It just didn't fit. It just didn't okay. fit. We were able to drive we were able to drive over it. Did it have it a funny just, it name? Wasn't, it wasn't a good uh, we didn't come up with a name yet, but we probably would have called it the round table. That's how you see. That's oh, yeah, right. that's cool. You have seen there, Ruth? You understand what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but then we had another one that was um sort of a it was a moat like shape, but it had uh uh it had like uh cargo netting or actually I think we put bungees kind of like in a web. Ooh. And then we realized that's a defense that you go into, and don't come out of. just that's yeah, you're done. It's also it's a, it's a trap. That was a little bit. It was like uh, well, I, I, absolutely, some teams could have could have figured it out. But if you were like it was a box, a box, rookie box, killer, right? Spongy <laughs> cords would get all wrapped around you. You were just oh, would have needed, um, you know, we would have needed a backhoe to get you out, their robot out of their uh, defenses. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I'm just exaggerating a little bit. But there were, there were, yeah, there were a number of other defenses. See, I'm using too many words. I'm sorry. There were a lot of deep. There were some defenses that we so many. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so I think we got one one more question to come up here. Uh, this is from the crowd here. Uh, the question is: Do you guys expect or anticipate or think you might be working with Disney? Uh, in the future, do you think it was the, was the experience actually, positive? We're, yes, uh, we're hoping to. Um, we've, we're actually exchanging some emails right now. We want to the partnership to to kind of 
keep going for 2017. I, I expect we will, but we don't, we don't know, you know, but that's what we're hoping to. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. So before we uh, go, oh, uh, here, actually, we got another question coming up real quick. We're going to throw it up on the screen. All right. Here we go. Uh, how about what aspect of this year's game keeps Frank awake at night? <laughs> I have to say that I, I sleep pretty well. I mean, just as a general rule, I sleep pretty well. Uh, I think I am interested to see how the whole logistics of the defense coordinator and the changing out the defenses is going to work. I mean, if you look at in my mind anyway, this is kind of the um, one of the unique game mechanics that we have here is changing out these defenses yeah. and the the various combinations you can have and just having that all happen it's going to be a little bit of a ballet and we expect the the practice day uh, at regionals is going to get um, is going to get well used to not just for the the teams but also for the um, uh, the field crew as well so it, there's definitely going to be a lot of activity and meet moving pieces i mean you have a we have a, a game that there are more potential permutations of fields then we're actually going to have matches in 2016. Not that we're expecting a, a different field every time because I know that there are going to be some defenses that are going to be favorites and not yeah. favorites and all that kind of thing, but there's just lots of combinations here that we wow. could we could end up seeing. But we'll see. We don't know how much is going to vary or they're going to, you know, teams alliance is going to change things around. We don't know. This is why it's exciting and new. Yeah. I, I got to say, I'm incredibly excited to see this game. I love the whole. I love a lot of aspects of it, and uh, and I think everybody else on Game Sense. When we saw the game mm -hmm. in our internal Slack, it was exploding yeah. with with. Ooh. Oh, great! So well, <laughs> it exploded after a period of about five minutes of complete dead, stunned silence. Basically, yes. <laughs> and then, which of course was preceded by the first stunned silence when we saw you. In a knight's outfit. At the, uh, <laughs> where, where did you learn your acting skills, by yeah. the way? Because that was, that was so spot on. Who, who's, whose idea was that? Was that, a, was that, a, was that oh, Okay, so yeah. So um, that was uh, Blair Hundermark, MC <laughs> extraordinaire, and said, actor. hey, we could do like a Monty Python thing. And then from there, you know, it just went on from there. And, and I have to tell you, though, my, my concern is, you know, when I was putting on that costume and the, the chain mail, I was sitting there thinking, my career has peaked. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have nowhere to go but down. Yep. <laughs> but we had, we, it was just, it was, we really just had a lot of fun. We, it was just a lot of fun. And that's what we were trying to get. It was important for us to get that across to the community as well because, mm -hmm. the, let's face it, the Middle Ages wasn't great time for females or minorities or anybody that wasn't a rich white guy you know which is you know completely different from the way it is now but uh, the um uh, uh just we wanted to make sure that this that we got across the community that this is just supposed to be fun it's not intended to be a, you know simulated warfare you're not really killing the other guy it's 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 a game it's supposed to be a fun game it, within the context of this larger party which is what uh frc events are Cool. Well, I got to say, we had a lot of fun having you on the show. Uh, thank Thanks you so, so much, much for joining us once again. It was great sure. to have you and to hear all your 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 thoughts and comments and a little bit of behind the scenes. Um, yeah, we're no gonna problem. we're gonna let Frank go and and hang out with his family for the evening. But we're gonna be right back. We're gonna go to a splash screen for a quick second, 
and we come right back, and you're going to hear the first strategic uh, discussion of Game Sense of the season as we give our impressions of the game. So, Frank, bye bye now. Thanks, it's really good thanks to see so you much, guys. No thank thanks, you. Frank. Thanks so much. We'll see you. All righty. 
We are back here. Uh, I want to once again thank Frank for joining us once again on GameSense. It was a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, if you're just tuning in now, uh, the show will be posted on YouTube so you, get, you won't miss any of the conversation we had with him earlier. Uh, but let's talk about our initial reactions to Stronghold. I'm going to throw it first to our newbie, to Ruth Toomey. Ruth, give us what are your initial reactions for Stronghold. Oh my God, Fieldry said it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, as as a volunteer, mostly it, it was uh, you know Fieldry said it's going to be a nightmare. Queuing's going to be a nightmare, um, and then it was this is going to be the coolest game I've ever seen. Um, I I think defenses are going to play a bigger part in this than absolutely anything else. Um, it'll be interesting to see if there's anybody who routinely tackles all five categories every match, but yeah. Cool. Evan, what, you, what were your initial thoughts of the game when you first saw it come out? Yeah, uh, I, I was really excited. Um, this is the first time that I can remember in a very long time coming out of the uh, kickoff really not not feeling like, oh, they were so close to a good game, but they just messed up one part. Um, you know, I there's been a couple years where you come away and go, really? That's that's what you did this year? Um, and so for me, especially, um, I'm, I'm mentoring a rookie team this year. Um, I was really excited, not because I think uh, this is necessarily a great game for rookies. I think it's going to be very, very hard. Um, but because as a mentor, I find it a lot easier to uh, inspire my students if I'm really excited about what we're doing. Um, and so I, I, I was really happy. I thought I think it's going to be a really, really fun game to watch. It's very visual. Yeah, I agree. Um, when I first saw the game, I, I, so I, I immediately saw like the one big flaw that sort of every first game has had, which is, which is a meaning behind it. You know? And mm -hmm. I touched a little bit on this when we talked with Frank. Um, about you know sort of the idea of top-down design and and having a board game that's not just tic-tac-toe right something with a story behind it um, that that having having this this ability to give your game depth greater than the number of points you score is huge and it's great and it's it's one of those things that if you look at like books or or articles or things people write about game design having a story and having a theme like like uh, Frank said is the is one of the most important things. It's something that first has been sort of half-heartedly doing. You know, Lunacy, Recycle Rush were sort of half-hearted attempts at a theme. <laughs> uh, they sort of like, you know, and but I think this game like took it and gave it a big old hug and just went down with it the whole way. Like it was like every single item on the field is named yeah. after medieval, a medieval thing. The whole game looks like a medieval theme. Uh, just the fact that they didn't just put a hole in a wall but made it look like a castle, which is useless, mm. right? There's no the, – the engineer on you says, oh, there's no reason for that junk. That's just – that makes it look good, right? But making it look good is like probably the, the thing that I am most happy with with this game. Naveed, what, are you, what, are your, what were your initial reactions when you saw this game? I really liked it. It Right off the bat, it felt a lot like 2013 to me, which is one of my favorite games in recent years for a lot of reasons. This game has a lot of different options that you can make, and – Unlike in 2013, the climbing aspect being ridiculously hard and hurting a lot of teams in the design process, I feel like there are a lot of really good opportunities to design around the issues in this game and to make trade-offs. 
but I don't feel like there's any that's going to shoot teams in the foot too hard. I feel like it's a game that is easy enough that a top-tier team can design to play all aspects of the game fairly well. It's going to be difficult. Uh, I also think that higher-level to mid-level teams will be able to do most, if not nearly all of the things well. And I, it gives a lot of flavor, a lot of options for teams to do different things. Yeah. Well, speaking of biting teams in the foot, um, you know, one thing we didn't talk touch on while Frank was on the show was the infamous uh, Q612. Uh, <laughs> it is infamous. Q and A. Six hours uh, ago, showed, showed up this morning. Yeah, um, <laughs> about about some of the field dimensions involving the rock wall and whether it's four and a half or five and a half inches wide. Um, we specifically didn't touch upon it because first has updated their. Um, their response to say that they're reconsidering and that they'll have a formal response on uh, Friday. So they did hear us uh, and all the concerns there. But certainly there are some aspects of this game which I think um, are very, very challenging and not ideal, um, especially with regards to the sheer number of field elements that teams have mm -hmm. to build um, if they're trying to... Uh, test and see if their robot is functional on on them and the fact that there are some fairly in, uh, significant discrepancies between the field the team version of the elements the wood versions and the possibly the real ones so um, I, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about how that'll impact uh, teams and and their designs when they get to the field I, I think it's really unfortunate I mean on that note many teams don't even get access to any field components throughout their build season. And a team who has to show up at a competition and has eight new defenses that they may not have had the chance to fine-tune for or design the minutia to help them get through that may see an uh, additional mm -hmm. amount of complexity there. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with Navid on this one. Um, and, and then the teams that have gone to the trouble of already building, um, <laughs> uh, you know, not to pick on Robot in Three Days, for example, um, you know, most of those have already built their robot and they were based on the published field dimensions, which are off by an inch in a pretty significant part. Um, but they're, you know, that, oh, possibly, um, as things stand now um, yeah. via published updates. Uh, you know, their measurements were off, uh, which is incredibly frustrating, uh, I would imagine. Um, and uh, I, th I think there was also a very slight change with um, the hanging bar. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's half an inch compared to an inch. But it's it's changing, you know, if you've already designed for that sweet spot, it's going to be, you know, hopefully it's not throwing a wrench in the design process, but... Yeah. And that okay. was width, not depth, on the rung, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it went in. It was originally uh, one foot nine inches wide, and now it is uh, changed to one foot eight and a half inches wide. Right. I mean, your percentage difference there is is much much smaller. Right. Um, right. And and I would be surprised if any teams are designing a a climber, or I would caution any teams right. not to design a scaling device which is exactly twenty inches, you know, wide. Uh, or yeah. 20 and a half or whatever it ends up being, whereas there are teams which are very specifically designing mm -hmm. over the four and a half inch depth of yeah. the rock wall. Um, it, yeah, it's, so. it's really unfortunate this kind of... I, I'm, I, I'm glad it came to light now because yeah. over the years of first, there have been a lot of... Like the, the, the fields that people build 
are meant to work with dimensioned lumber you get at Home Depot, not with what the people who design them can do. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate, but it's it's actually been a problem most years in first to a certain extent. You know. Yeah, I mean, for those of us that remember 2012, the way mm. that those ramps actually behaved was uh, significantly different than the team version of it. But um, I think the 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 main concern here is more. Uh, not to hammer on the point too much, but the dynamics and the sheer number of all of the different ones, yeah. it's a much, much higher likelihood that you're going to have teams showing up to competition with robots that worked on the team elements and don't work on at least some of the real field elements yeah. due to a combination of minor uh, dimensional differences or surface texture or, you know, what have you. Yeah. Um, and I sort of look at that as, as a additional challenge. You know, mm -hmm. the good news is that it's all pretty upfront, and it the defenses. If you know, as we sort of move into sort of the strategy of it, the defenses are probably the one of the like the most important thing on the field, right? They're they are in my at least in my opinion, I think they're like the most important game piece on the field. If you could, I would call them a game piece. I wouldn't call them an obstacle. I would call them a game piece. You know. Yeah, and talking about all these game pieces, these dimensions and tolerancing, I think there's an additional level of subtlety that some teams, um, especially at the lower levels, may not have picked up on yet that we've seen addressed on Chief Delphi, like the low bar aperture. Um, what height does it actually take for you to get underneath that low bar? Um, and that the height is dependent on the angle that you're coming up that ramp underneath the low bar and the fact that it's offset from center. Um, getting onto the batter, you can physically design a robot that cannot challenge. Um, if you're designing to scale, three robots that are even not marginally small by any means, we're talking like you'd have to be down to 24 inches or less, are going to have issues with interacting with other teams that are next to, next to them scaling if they are of a sizable uh, dimension. So there are a lot of subtleties that some teams may not have picked up on if they haven't had a chance to walk around the field elements, build them, or really look into the dimensions that are given in the, the field yeah. drawings. But that's yeah. why you watch GameSense, you learn about all <laughs> these tips and tricks. Yeah, I, I, but, but even with that, you know, I, I think this year, more than any year, um, I'm kind of expecting a larger number of robots to show up at events and not be able to do some of the things that they've specifically designed to do, which is, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Yeah. Those of us that are always clamoring for a game that requires a unique drive-based design, like this one does potentially, right? Well, yeah, you got to put a lot of thought into your drive-based, but it also means that teams that can't just use the stop kit bot and expect to be able to not get stuck on half the field obstacles, Right or build the kit bot and they can't actually challenge because they didn't pick the right dimensions or those kinds of things. So, um, but on the other but, hand, if you've got just a good drive base, you can do really well in this game. Right, and and so I think there is a lot of encouragement from a strategy standpoint. Maybe it's time to time to move on to talking about the strategic part of this game. From a strategy standpoint, there is a significant number of points and contributions to your alliance that you can do with a really well thought out drive base and no other end effectors whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I like I was sort of mentioning before, the 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 game the the game piece you're going to interact with the most this season is going to be the defenses. And I you know, my buddy Steve Kane said it best when we were talking about this is that 
um, our buddy Steve Kane, we all know Steve, um, <laughs> is that um, if you think about when you're if you want to have positive control of your game pieces, that's like one of those t things that that you know people who do strategy will always say you got to have positive control of every game piece because you can't hold it or you can't pick it up, you can't play with it. This year, you got to have positive control of your robot. Yeah. That's because that's that's the thing that's going to get you everywhere. Well, some of the other strategy aspects that I think um, you know are really appealing to me. Um, the ranking points. We touched upon it a little bit um, earlier with Frank, but the fact that um, you can increase your ranking without winning a match. Um, in fact, you can uh, you can effectively win a match. Uh, it's very difficult, but if you are able to both breach the defenses and uh, capture the tower with your alliance. Um, it's equivalent to having won the match as far as your ranking points are concerned. Um, yeah, if you're a strong robot and you get paired against two other really strong robots, if you're able to breach by yourself, you may lose that match, but at least you get that that RP for breaching. Yeah, uh, I think we're going to see an interesting thing with breaching this year. Um, uh, half the defenses, you can just blow right <laughs> over them. We're probably going to see a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, Leroy Jenkins type of robots, um, probably a couple General Lees. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's like those Duke boys up to no good again. <laughs> um, yeah. so it, it'll be interesting to see how that has affected a lot of robot designs in terms of robustness and, um, you know, whether they're trading speed uh, and agility for making sure their robot doesn't break when they go over that. Yeah, I agree. We're going to see a lot of robots kind of pulling those maneuvers. Um, but I think that if they do, they're going to find themselves at less of an advantage than if you think if you are able to come up with a drive line that's more uh, more capable than that. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's easy to take the easy way out. You know, you really <laughs> want to build in some margin of error. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so if you get if you get bumped a little bit on your run up to the defense, right? Because remember, if you're not already crossing the defense. Uh, your opponents can give you a little tap on the back bumper, and uh, you might not be going over quite as generally as you were hoping. Um, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I I think a well thought out drivetrain is going to be paramount here, and also uh, just as important, well built, well secured electronics. Um, robots are going to going over these things are going to have a lot of bumps, a lot of bounces, especially if you're trying to brute force it with some speed. Um, I remember back in 2010. Uh, holy cows had a, a 10 wheel drivetrain um, with small diameter, you know, you're just your standard aluminum uh, wheels, and they would come flying over that bump. Um, and they said that they, before they were willing to sign off on their robot and, and pack it up for competition, they drove, they had to drive over that bump 50 times in a row without having any electrical or mechanical failures wow. uh, and I there's a very similar uh, you know shock to the system on on some of these too so be careful out there yeah don't forget your zip ties and your hot glue that's gonna be important <laughs> when they're in the hot and, glue legal uh, for electrical connections I believe it is it's an insulator right sure or, well okay how about this it, it has been look at the rules where you say, yes. do what yeah. I say yeah. <laughs> it but used to be legal We've come very far. A lot of teams are using Andersons on tons of things. Um, uh, mm -hmm. There are different ways for to mount PWM cables without hopefully having to glue them to yeah. um, 
your Jaguar like you may have thought of doing in the past. A little bit of a shameless plug. Um, 971 developed a, a board that plugs into the MXP port uh, that's being sold by West Coast Products, um, which has uses Molex connectors with detents on the top. Um, our, our team bought two of them just because that way we don't have to worry about the PWM cables shaking loose out of the Robo Rio. It's, it's got a detent in it. It's going to stay locked in. Um, so that's, you know, there's solutions to it out there. Yeah. I think we actually have a question that we uh, we had coming through the um, through the, the wire here. Let's put it up here. Um, Ooh! Oh, here we go. This is from who's the question asker? FM Eric Seven. FM Eric Seven. Yeah. FM Eric Frank FM Eric Seven uh, asks: <laughs> Are the scaling points worth it? So let's review scaling points. If you one robot scaling is worth fifteen points, and yes. it counts as a challenge to the tower, whether you're on the the batter or the scale. Mm-hmm. So. And it's 15 points regardless of if the tower is weakened. The points have nothing to do with capturing or are, are independent of capturing the tower. Yeah, I, um, I, that's, I got confused about that when I saw the animation before yeah. I read the rules. Yeah, but, read the rules. Yes. You also yes. get points for being on the batter, though. Yes, so that's you the do. question. That's true. Is it worth? It's a, it's a delta 10. Um, I'll, I'll just put in my two cents. I think it's worth it if you can do most of the other aspects of the game. Um, you know, you're talking about two balls in the high goal makes the difference between a challenge and uh, a scale, right? Or five balls in the low goal, right? Um, personally, I think it's definitely going to be something we see at the high levels of play, right? It's, it's a lot like the 30-point climb, um, not quite as difficult, but still in terms of once you've run out of discs, you know, you can't run out of balls, but but once you've reached sort of a, a maximum cap of points that your robot can effectively achieve or a robot can effectively achieve in a match, that's where you get your extra points from. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Evan, you say it, that it's um, very similar to the 30-point climb. If you look at the, the delta points that you're getting out of it, if all three teams on your alliance uh, make the scale, that is a 30-point climb, and that, that can be yeah. a potentially big swing at the end of the match. Yeah. Um, because remember, you still get two ranking points for winning the match, um, regardless of what you get for capturing the tower and breaching the defenses. So that's not necessarily something to look mm -hmm. down your nose at. Yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's certainly, I think that Ruth had on an important point about the scaling is that, um, when it's one robot scaling over, over going on the batter, it's kind of like, eh, right. Woo, woo. You know, like it's, it's like. It's actually pretty equivalent in points to the 2010 game if you held if you could climb on top of one of your other robots. I see what you did there. But just points, not <laughs> difficulty, right? Um, yeah. But if you get all three, it can be worth. It can be enough to swing a match, which I think gives to Evan's point that this is going to become a huge thing later on when robots, if robots can do everything. Yeah. So the question that that Frank asked are the scaling points worth it I think right off the bat within the first few days some people were willing to say oh it's a red herring in 2013 climbing was a red herring that was the last time we had to climb or scale and there was a much greater level of design difficulty required to climb that versus what we have now and I think that perhaps right off the bat some people took that into consideration and after thinking about it longer from a design perspective it is significantly if not orders of magnitude easier to design for scaling this tower than it was in 2013. 
Yeah, I think it it comes down to what I I think it's worth it, right? But it depends on what your other priorities are and what your resources are as a team, right? If I can't scale, if I can choose to either be able to scale the tower or go cross a lot of defenses, um, I think crossing the defenses is more worth it. But if my choice is between scaling the tower and shooting and I haven't traditionally built a lot of really good, powerful shooters as a team, maybe I'd think about scaling. I, I don't think from a mechanism standpoint it's particularly difficult. Um, I think from a game standpoint, it's, uh, it's certainly valuable. I mean, points are points, right? Yeah. Um, it just comes down to what design trade-offs your team is able or willing to make uh, to make various parts of the, of the game possible. Yeah. I think one thing to remember, too, is that it isn't as easy as it as it could be, because yeah. we have to keep ourselves within the in the fifteen inch frame extension. Mm -hmm. If it was that easy, we could theoretically just drop a hook on there and just winch yourself up, kind of like mm -hmm. sixty seven two thousand ten. But it's a little more challenging. Yeah, um, I also don't think that it's it's going to be a very interesting end game to watch. Uh, but I think that we're not going to see a lot of fast climbers, so it's not going to be a very explosive, super exciting uh, end of the match, uh, dissimilar from what you saw from, you know, example 2K7, where you had <laughs> robots zooming up ramps to, on other robots to, uh, you know, potentially or get a big swing. Ramps. Or not going <laughs> up ramps. Um, <laughs> you know, or 179. Yeah, it, it's going to be... It'll be interesting to see how exciting of an end game it's going to shake out. I think this is going to be one of those games where most of the match is actually going to be really, really exciting to watch. And in the end of it, you'll be able to guess with 15 seconds left, you know, mm -hmm. who's going to come out with it on top unless somebody has, you know, a lightning fast scaler. Yeah. Well, the thing to remember is that there are a lot of off-the-shelf power takeoff options that you can do for robots. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, is it worth the time and the development to get that to go? If, or is it better to just stick a one or two mini sims on a gearbox and just go with it you know because we have this is the other thing to remember too is we have we have Lots of options tons of power like it's More it's power. it's crazy we have, with the only yeah. limit for motors is six sims that's, yeah it's crazy it's a lot of power so and what your battery can handle right? yeah and what your battery can get handle. about your battery yes well <laughs> it, it's it's hard to kill your battery in a match if you're unless you're going absolutely crazy you're much more likely to brown out your C Rio if you're doing yeah. six or seven sims at a time. Fair enough. But because um, the one twenty eight breaker does manage to to get that there. Yeah. Uh, no, what, I, what are what are some other thoughts people have about this game compared to other years? Evan, you were saying something. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, I I think this game is uh, it borrows a lot of elements from other. Uh, other previous years, um, as we've talked about, there's a lot of natural comparisons, but it does so in a very unique way, um, and I think that's that's why I like it. Right? It's like it's not just um, you know that the rock wall is the barrier from uh, 2012, right? It's not the Cheval de Frise. Sure, it's a teeter totter, but uh, it's not at all the same teeter totter that we've ever dealt with before yeah right the hanging bar yeah it's a hanging bar we've done hanging all the time but the rules about how you can hang are different this time um you know and it's it's exciting because you can look to the past for inspiration and there may be some solutions there but they're not just a, because there's so many different combinations right that rock wall isn't going to be on the field every match so 
just designing a drivetrain that's really good at getting over the rock wall and saying, I'm going to use Team X's drivetrain from 2012 because it worked, right? Well, okay, but now you've got a whole bunch of other ones that you can or cannot maybe contend with. So <laughs> that's that's really cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I'm thinking that might maybe come back sort of as what we saw in 2014, you know, there's a lot of value to capturing the tower. So if you can just get the balls into the goals, whether it's mm -hmm. high or low, you know, 2014 saw a lot of low goal shooting, especially at the district and regional level. I think we're going to see a lot of low goal scoring this year. Especially in qualification matches. Absolutely, yeah. And even in eliminations, uh, getting the bonus points for capturing the tower is worth is still worth a lot of points. Um, it's you take that risk from not being able to bring that tower to zero health, and it's definitely not worth it. Yeah, if we can't get yeah. it to zero, then it's definitely not worth. But if you, uh, you know, it's it's one. Of, I think that's one of the good things about this game is that it offers you a non-linear strategic objective, right? It gives you, even though it goes down linearly, that's not what I mean. It means that you have multiple vectors of attack. Instead, it's not mm -hmm. just build stack, build more stack, shoot frisbee, shoot more frisbee. You have a ton of different things, or, or at least several different things you can accomplish to end the game and win the match. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think. With that, we're going to go to our uh, our last question of the night uh, before we say goodnight. And we're going to put up on the screen right about now. Here it comes. All right. Of the 32 robots on Einstein, how many robots will be able to fit under the low bar? Bold predictions time, starting with Ruth. Ruth, what are your thoughts? What's your bold prediction? How many will fit under the low bar? Out of the 32 on Einstein this year. I'd say 28. 28. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Naveed. That's what I was going to say. So, to make things interesting, I think there are going to be a lot of teams at the higher tier, like we're talking top 25 teams at championship that can do low bar and can also do everything else well, and that maybe they're looking for somebody who can increase their point potential. If your top two robots on your alliance can breach all of the defenses... I'm going to say we'll go a little bit less. We'll go 20, 24, 26. We'll make it 25. Split the difference. Okay. I'm gonna, before we go to Evan, I'm going to tell people from the, uh, from the group. Uh, Ty, who is watching, he predicts 24. Stephanie predicts 16. That's two on every alliance. Evan, give us your bold prediction. I was going to say 16 as well. Um, Stephanie sniped me on that one. Hey, you can say but... 16. Yeah, no, I um, I think it's going to be roughly half, and the reason why is because I think at the Einstein level, um, that scaling is going to be really important, and I think once you start wrapping around picks, you don't really need three robots that can right. all go under the low bar, right? Only two of them actually have to, only one of them has to for points, right? Two of them probably makes it a little bit easier for everybody to get around, right? And one of them can have a really nice auto that goes underneath or whatever. But that third robot, I really think is going to be, my opinion, prioritizing scaling because, um, you know, and maybe shooting or whatever, but they don't have to be the breaker of all defenses because your first two are probably going to be capable of that. Bearing in mind that those are probably going to be the higher ranked robots because they have been breaching defenses all game. Um, and I think more often than not, you're going to find more reliable scalers which can't fit under the low bar then you will find reliable scalers at that point in the draft that can. Hmm. Um, so I think you're going to be far closer to 50% uh, of the teams on Einstein that, uh, that can fit under the low bar than, than a higher. 
All right. I see what you mean. But because it's bold predictions time, <laughs> I'm predicting 30. Wow. Because I think, I think that you are absolutely correct. You don't need somebody to – you don't need everybody to be able to go under the low bar. That's legit. You don't have to do that. I think you're going to see a lot of teams doing that. I think you're going to see that the 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 thing that will drive – lots of teams will be driven to go under the low bar because it's always there. It's in the same spot. It's easy to traverse the defense in autonomous mode and then it's to a good chunk of points. line up and score. So there's a ton of other things that lead you down the path so that we're going to see – the only reason I say that that many because there's going to be so many robots that are low and can go under the low bar. If we look at most of the robots in three days, they're most – I believe most of them are about that size, are about low bar size. And if you want to you know, mm-hmm. think not just from like, oh, people can build those robots, but that's the first study people go to. I think, I think it's going to be more. I think it's going to be high. I think you're, but that being said, I think you're right, Evan. <laughs> well, you heard it here. Logic is sound, but if you meta it out, it ends up being a little bit more. Interesting. I, I will. I will remind you that we are. Uh, if we follow the trend from last year, we are at seventy-five team divisions. True. Just, just want to point and, that out. And yeah. the argument there, I would say, counter argument is there are a handful of teams that we, some of us may have personally know of, that have abandoned the low bar in an effort to do a bunch of other things because they assume they'll be able to get a partner that can do the low bar. Eventually. So, it's like double meta. There will be, <laughs> yes. there will be an interesting economy this year with low bar versus yeah. not low bar robots and at any given event, how many low bar robots versus not low bar robots there are. Uh, I'm, I'm going yeah. to... They'll be big at districts. <laughs> I'm going to throw in um, a potential red herring here. Um basically an asterisk to my prediction. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that there will be teams that build a robot with a modular superstructure that they can add or remove. Yep. Depending Ooh. on what their strategy is. So there like they have a hanger, it. they take it off and they go into the low bar? Yeah. Yeah. There are teams doing it. I like the way you think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we can either confirm or deny that there are teams doing it either. I can confirm. <laughs> All right. But... With that, everybody, we've already gone over. We figured it was okay to go a few minutes over because we had a lot of great talking with Frank today. Um, but I want to thank everybody who's watched us today. If you're watching us on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the various things we have. We got Facebook, Twitter, we got uh, Twitch, we got YouTube, we got the Snapchat. I hear the kids use the Snapchat these days. Uh, it's pretty popular with the young folks these days. So go ahead and do that, whatever it is. Um, another reminder is that. We do Game Sense uh, every week during the build season. Uh, excuse me, during the competition season. <laughs> oh, please don't. <laughs> we got a robot to build. Every week in the competition season, starting uh, before week one, uh, we'll definitely sit before week one, uh, we have a show Wednesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. You can watch us here on Twitch or on YouTube. Uh, and we'll be doing that all the way through to the end of Championships and maybe a little bit beyond. Uh, so... For that, I want to thank everybody on behalf of everyone here on GameSense. Hope you have a good evening, and good luck this build season. We'll see you in a couple weeks, everybody.